Hello, and welcome to this live recording from Mount Pleasant Baptist Church. This message was given by Graham Mabry at our Burragoon campus. So sit back, listen in, and enjoy what God's got to say to you. Lovely to be with you tonight. I love speaking to the night congregation and to be able to talk about Hezekiah and righteousness in the continuing series, Heart of Kings. And Hezekiah, I reckon, is the sort of name there just should be a book in the Bible called Hezekiah. There should be. It's just the sort of name you should. And I have a friend who, whenever somebody comes, he's a pastor friend of mine, and if somebody comes out with something which sounds okay but's clearly not biblical, he'll say, ah, yes, I think you'll find that in the book of Hezekiah chapter 2. Or he used to at times say to people, my text tonight is in Hezekiah, and they'd get their Bible, they'd be diving into the index and the contents and thinking he's got to be in the minor prophets here somewhere. No, there's no book of Hezekiah, uh, unfortunately. Not a book named after him, but he's mentioned in a lot of them. He's mentioned in a lot of books. He's in two Kings and two Chronicles, like all the kings. He's in Isaiah and Micah and Hosea, and those three guys ministered in his lifetime. They were around when he was around. He's mentioned in Jeremiah. He's mentioned in Matthew because, of course, Matthew's wanting to show that Jesus follows in the line of the kings of Judah from David. So Hezekiah gets a run there. And he's mentioned in Proverbs. I didn't, I kind of really hadn't clicked until this week that the Proverbs were first collected by men that he commissioned. If you read Proverbs 25.1, you'll see these are more Proverbs of Solomon compiled by the men of Hezekiah king of Judah. So tonight I want us to learn what can we learn from this young king? What can we learn from his life? What can we learn about three biblical words? What can we learn about two hearts? And what can we take away to change us? God willing, please Lord. There's very good evidence that supports the story of Hezekiah. It just happens to be one of those kings where the non-biblical evidence is really strong. What you're looking at there is a tunnel that he dug. He dug a tunnel, it's called the Siloam Tunnel, and it brought water from the... There was a spring, it was (laughs) from the Gihon Springs outside the wall of Jerusalem in under the wall Uh, he also inside of that it has the Shiloh inscription you can go and see it today and it's said to have been written while Hezekiah was on the throne Uh, he's also responsible for the broad wall you can still see that in Jerusalem seven meters thick uh, to help with the defense of the city he is uh, somebody all the all the non-biblical records are pretty much agreeing with scripture the annals of Sennacherib and a neo-Babylonian letter that we've got all agree with what the Bible Bible says about Sennacherib not being able to take Jerusalem and getting assassinated when he went home and one of as you'll hear in a moment one of Hezekiah's big things was getting rid of the high places and one of the world leading archaeologists William Deaver says the destruction of the high places are archaeological fact so a lot of support for this biblical story our reading tonight's from 2 Kings 18 and Jazz is going to read it for us Thanks, Jess. Uh, 2 Kings 18, 1-8. In the third year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 29 years. His mother's name was Abijah, daughter of Zechariah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. He removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made, for up to that time the Israelites had been burning incense to it. 
It was called Nehushtan. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord and did not stop following him. He kept the commands the Lord had given Moses. And the Lord was with him. He was successful in whatever he undertook. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. From watchtower to fortified city, he defeated the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory. Okay, this young man, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. Thirteen kings of Judah between uh, David and Hezekiah. Only four of them get that accolade, that they walked with the Lord as David did. Of course, Hezekiah does. So does Asa, Jehoshaphat and Josiah. All the rest, not so. But here's the thing. His father, Ahaz, was one of the most evil kings of Israel. Ahaz turned Jerusalem into a center of immorality, idolatry, and atrocity. He had evil in his home. His country was absolutely corrupt. It was dominated by its enemies, the Assyrians and the Philistines. And here, I'm so glad I'm talking to you young people tonight, young adults, A 25-year-old stands up and says, I'm going to overturn 250 years of accommodating idols. My father might be one of the most evil kings who ever lived, but I am going to follow God. It's, It's a wonderful statement of the gospel. Your past does not dictate your future. You are not some determinist product of forces of fate. You're a creation of God. And your future is what he says it is. And he makes you a new creation if you're seven or 70. Your age is irrelevant. Your background is irrelevant. What matters is who God is and what Jesus did and the promises that he made. This guy is a wonderful example that your past does not dictate your future. There are three things that this young man did. And you just heard Jazz read him to us. He trusted in the Lord. And it says there, there was no one like him among all the kings of Judah. Well, if you read through, you'll find it says that about other kings too. But it's not just a phrase they throw in there to keep the king happy, of course. What what the scripture is saying is this. In this matter of trusting the Lord, nobody was like Hezekiah. He had a unique capacity to trust his God. He held fast to the Lord and did not stop following him. It took 16 days to clean all the idolatry and rubbish out of the temple. When he called people to Passover, he faced enormous opposition. And you heard Jazz read to us, he rebelled against the the, uh, other powers. The reason he put that tunnel and those thick walls, he knew the enemy were coming. See, he had to rebel against Assyria because you can't serve two masters. If he's going to cleave to God, he's going to fight against them. And he knew that was coming. And at 25, he says, I'm not serving them. I'm not having this idolatry. I'm following God. And he kept the commands that the Lord gave Moses. In fact, all often through the story of his reign, you'll see the phrase that he said, did this or that, following the word of God. That was his guide. What does the word say? That's what I do. And uh, he knew that love was spelt by God, O-B-E-Y. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll do what I ask. You'll keep my commands. 
Before the Israelites crossed the Jordan, Moses said to them, and other speakers in the series have mentioned this, destroy all their carved images and their cast idols and demolish their high places. So what what does this young man do? He removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones and cut down the Asherah poles. Now high places, not a term we use now, but it's, it's important. It's in the scripture, I think it's 117 times, so we'd better have a quick look at it. As their name suggests, they were high places. (laughs) Funny thing that, they were up on top of mountains and hills or under luxuriant trees and they were the centres for idol worship for the Canaanites. That's where they worshipped their gods. They had 26 major deities. They included El, Baal, Dagon, the Philistine god that you hear about with Samson and, uh, and Saul, Ashtoreth, the fertility goddess, and of course, a lot of sexual immorality and prostitution at those shrines. Worst of all, hideously, Molech and Chemosh and that's where children were the offering so that's what he tackles he says I'm going to I'm going to trust God I'm going to keep on obeying God and I'm going to do what Moses said what's the result well you heard it in the reading the Lord was with him he was successful in everything he undertook from watchtower to fortified city he defeated the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory wow you might be thinking no wonder we picked him for righteousness but wait as they say in all the telecommercials there's more (laughs) but wait there's more because you remember when Nick was speaking to us about David and he said you can describe David with some wonderful words shepherd worshiper man after God's own heart you can also describe him as adulterer murderer well listen to this Hezekiah's heart was proud Hezekiah did not repay the favour shown to him. Therefore wrath came upon him and upon Judah and Jerusalem. Oh, he made several unwise choices not led by God. Hmm, maybe not such a good choice for righteousness. What are we picking this guy for? He's a turkey. See, the thing I love about the series Heart of Kings so far is all of their clay feet and faults are out there for us to see. They're one of us. I mean, they're mighty men of God and there were mighty women of God in scripture, but they they were human. As you saw on that uh, preview of next week's documentary, we aspire to being in the image of God, as the former Archbishop of Canterbury Canterbury was saying, but we fail palpably. So what, what is this righteousness thing? Well, see, the problem is our culture sees righteousness as earned. This is the statue of uh, Lady Justice, which you find outside, thanks Ed, you find this outside the, the Old Bailey. And we see righteousness as earned, the pan scales idea. And, the, and you just got to hope that you can get enough good stuff in the scales to get you over the line. And if you have the, the scales idea of justice, and by the way, as we'll see in a moment, God does, but if you, if you have our idea of that, then you're kind of thinking, your key question is, what's a fair thing? <laughs> so when there's a command, that's why, you know, well, well, when, the, when the teacher of the law and Jesus are talking and Jesus says, yes, you're right, uh, you've got to love your neighbour as yourself. So what's the answer? What's the question, sorry? Well, hang on, who is my neighbour? What's a fair thing? Or, as I often wanted to know when I was a student, what's a pass mark here? <laughs> what gets me over the line? What's a pass mark? What's good enough? And Jesus answered that question, but probably not what they were expecting. You'll see it on the screen there. Jesus said, oh, it's easy, guys. Just be perfect. If you, want to make, if you want to use the scales and you want to measure up, be perfect. Your father is. 
See, the problem is when you're in one side, God's in the other, is what Jesus is saying. God's on the other, because in Scripture, you can't separate God and righteousness. As far as humans go, the Bible says none of us are righteous. It says that in Romans 3. John says, if we say we have no sin, we're just deceiving ourselves and trying to make God a liar. But righteousness and God are inseparable. They never get separated. Uh, In the Psalms, time and again, you can do it on a Google search sometime. If you search his righteousness, it comes up through the Psalms all the time. Psalm 50 and, uh, and 97 say, the heavens proclaim his righteousness. And Psalm 56, Psalm 50 verse 6 says, the heavens proclaim his righteousness for he is a God of justice. So that's a good image. God is a God of justice. The prophet says, let justice flow like a river, roll down. God is not pleased when there is not justice. He expects his people to speak on behalf of those who are denied justice. Hosea, who was around in the time of Ezekiel, says, Seek the Lord until he comes and showers his righteousness, his righteousness on you. Micah was around at the same time. I will see his righteousness, Micah says in Micah 7. And when David records his final prayer for his son Solomon, the next king, in Psalms, he says, Lord, endow the royal son with your righteousness. And then a weird thing happens. Jeremiah comes along and he says, I'll give you a name for the Lord. Jehovah Chedek, the Lord, our righteousness. How does that work? None of us are righteous. The Lord has he, the Lord is righteous. It's his righteousness. What's this business of the Lord, our righteousness? Well, of course, Jeremiah is talking about Jesus, who said those words, be perfect. Philip Yancey points out in his great book, uh, What's So Amazing About Grace, I think it is, uh, he points out that when Jesus hammers home the point that nobody measures up to God's standard, it sounds awful, but actually it's extremely good news. Let me tell you exactly what he says. He says, What sounds at first like bad news, a moral standard no one can reach, takes a dramatic shift. For in the same sermon, Jesus lowers the safety net of grace. See, in the radiance of God's purity, my sin is worse than I can imagine. But his grace is greater than I ever dared to dream. God, see, this this, this genius of God. He says, I'm on one side of the scales and there is a price to pay. So God puts himself on the other side of the scales too. God puts himself on the other side of the scale. See, on the cross, God is being both perfectly just. There's a penalty I can be a just God because I need that. There, when I, I've hurt people that I can't unhurt. I've not done things that caused pain that I can't undo. There's a price to pay that can't be swept under the carpet. So God says, okay, I will pay that price. Because on the cross, God is not only perfectly just, he's also perfectly loving. He's saying, I am perfect I can take all of your sin, sweep it up into myself and pay the price that you cannot pay. And then I can offer the gift of my righteousness to you. 
I've got the verse from Romans on the screen there for you. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. For all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. So all can be justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came in Christ. Isn't that amazing? If I have sinned, then I can accept the gift of that righteousness. Remember the younger son in the parable that Jesus talked, we call it the prodigal son, he's straight from the pigsty. But his father runs to him and what does he say? Quick, bring the fire hose. Hose this guy down, he stinks. Put a blanket around him. No. He says, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. The best robe. Isaiah uses that same idea that when God wraps us in righteousness, he's putting a robe on us, but he adds one important addition. He says, My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me in a robe of his righteousness as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Callie found me a great shot that's got the jewels happening. He's combining this idea of God giving us his righteousness with a New Testament word I want to talk to you about, a Bible word, not just New Testament, a biblical word, sorry. Covenant, the covenant of marriage. I want to talk to you about two Bible words that you really got to get hold of to understand righteousness. The first one is covenant. Covenant from God's perspective, and marriage is a covenant from him, for, from, as, as he sees it, marriage is for better, for worse. For richer, for poorer, in sickness, in health. Tim Keller points out we don't have a modern word for covenant because our culture doesn't run on those lines. Modern culture runs on a line that says the only thing that matters is the self. The only thing that really matters is the experiencing self. I might have kind of covenanted with a grocery store to support their business, but if one opens up closer to home that's a little bit cheaper, I'll probably go there. We have a kind of a consumer mentality. But in a covenant, it's very different. God talks about my people. Jesus talks about my sheep. If I didn't know you at all and I heard you say, oh, that's my Johnny or that's my Susie, I'd know there's a pretty special relationship here. It's intimate. Covenant is very intimate. It's extremely intimate. It's very personal, but it's also utterly legal. Covenant is legal, binding, sealed with an oath, and there's consequences if you break it. That's what covenant means. This is legal, it's binding, it's sealed with an oath and there's a consequence if you break it, no matter what. doesn't matter what your personal reality is, there are consequences that don't change. We can't understand righteousness until we understand covenant because that's the only way God relates to us. He's a covenant God, there's no other way. Remember what Jesus said at the Last Supper? took the cup and he said this is the new covenant the only way we relate to God is by covenant which is wonderful because it means it doesn't matter how I feel and God doesn't change the covenant holds the other word we've got to get hold of is believe what's this new testament word believe all about well it isn't just saying I believe in God I love the way James puts it in the second chapter of James. You see, 
James. He's, I wouldn't want James as a guest speaker necessarily, but, uh, but he's very straight from the shoulder. And he says, ah, you believe in God. Well done. The demons do too. Even the demons do that. So thank you, James, for pointing that out. All right. So it's clearly not just believing in God. Look at the, that, remember that verse in Romans, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. The word righteousness, the Hebrew word in the Old Testament is sedakah. It occurs 157 times in the Old Testament, but the first time it ever occurs with belief is in Genesis 15, when God is entering into a covenant with Abraham. God seals the covenant with an oath. That's what you do. Hebrews tells us this, when God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself. So God said, I am saying this to you and I swear by myself, for I am God. This is what will happen. And then he makes this staggering promise to a 75-year-old. You will have as many children as stars in the desert sky or sand on the seashore and through your children your offspring all nations will be blessed now Abraham's response tells us how we receive God's righteousness as many stars standing looking up at the desert night sky Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness Now, of course, it's not just mentally assenting. That word believe means Abram trusted in that promise of God. He totally rested on it. Abraham relied on it. Abraham remained steadfast for the rest of his life. And and it's 25 years before this boy comes along. But he remained. Who else did that? Trusted in God, remained steadfast? Hezekiah. That's why we picked him for righteousness. Because he did exactly what Abraham did. He he knew God's promise to his people and he believed in it. He trusted in it. He remained constant in it. You see, Hezekiah didn't just believe in God. God was his life. This young man, God is his life. Covenant relationship with God was at the center of Hezekiah's heart. The very first thing that Hezekiah does, listen to this, it's in Second Chronicles 29. In the first month of the first year of his reign, he opened the doors of the temple and he repaired them. But you know the interesting thing? Getting rid of the idols wasn't his focus. Even getting the temple open wasn't his focus. He absolutely wanted to do that first. His focus was covenant love. Because he says this, Consecrate yourselves to the Levites and the priests. Consecrate the temple. I intend to make a covenant. It's on the screen there. I intend to make a covenant with the God of Israel. What sort of heart do you have if your relationship to your father governs everything else? What sort of heart do you get? Well, I've got some of the things up there. One that's not on the screen, you get an incredibly generous heart that has an enormous capacity to trust God for money. We're told, and you can skip over some of these things, he repaired the doors. That didn't mean he popped down to Bunnings, got himself some CRC and sprayed the hinges, made sure they swung okay. It meant he covered the doors in gold. 
When the services in the temple started, the Bible tells us he provided a thousand bulls and seven thousand sheep and goats. He gave before he asked any of the people to give. I just checked it out this week at Beef Central, and right now a thousand bulls would cost you four point six million dollars. He gave out of a heart of love. If you look at his words, when Nick introduced the series in our Together Sheets, he said, you know, this the heart, out of the abundance of the heart, we speak. Jesus said that. Well, what comes out of Hezekiah's heart? It's on the screen. When he talks to the priests and Levites, he says, My sons, don't be negligent, for the Lord has chosen you. He's got a father's heart, and he's only 25. We have communion, he had Passover. As soon as he's got the temple clean, he invites people to Passover. And listen to, to his invitation. It's on the screen. The Lord your God is gracious and compassionate. He will not turn his face from you if you return to him. That's what I want to say to all of you in the room tonight. God never turned his face from you if you turn to him. He, had, he not only had a father's heart, he had his father's heart. Do you get that? He knows his father is gracious and compassionate. He knows the father wanted his children back. Hezekiah knew that. So he sends out an invitation. I've got that up for you. It says, the Lord your God is gracious and compassionate. Sorry, I got it wrong. He's welcome, sorry. The, The extent of his welcome shows that he knew God wanted his children back. His welcome, he says, Hezekiah sent word to all Israel and Judah and wrote letters to Ephraim and Manasseh. And you probably sit there and think, so what? Well, so this, Israel had been a divided kingdom for 250 years. And along comes this young man with a heart like his father. And he says, I don't care about 250 years of division. Everybody come to the Passover. When he sent the invitation out, most people scorned him. It's interesting. The ones who came are the ones who were humble. But he didn't care. He knew his father wanted all of his children because he's covenanted with them and he's covenanted in love to you if you accept and if you follow and never forget how much it cost for that covenant. Do you remember what Jesus prayed in John 17? Oh, Lord. May they be one as you and I are one. May they be brought to complete unity. He had his father's heart. So here you've got a guy, and I like Brian Pickering's summary of, of walking in this way with God. Brian, the way Brian describes covenant relationship is this. We, we, we are totally available and by God's grace radically obedient. And this young man was totally available. He was radically obedient And he became an agent of transformation. It's really crazy. Look, the hand of God was on the people to give them unity. Isn't that great? He's got a heart of unity. What happens with the people? God makes. See, if God can move in you, then God can move through you. If God has, the more access God has to me, the more he can pour his love through me to you. What else happens? After two weeks of a Passover like had never been seen for 250 years, 
The Israelites who were there went out to the towns of Judah, smashed the sacred stones, cut down the Asherah poles, destroyed the high places and altars throughout it throughout Judah and Benjamin, Ephraim and Manasseh. There had never been a cleansing like this since David. I remember a prayer day once when I was way, way back, just young, and uh, just starting to work with homeless young people. And I used to go up to this valley to pray, and the lovely little stream ran through. And this day I was, it was just dry. And I'd been sitting, reading, praying, thinking for a while, and I just wandered a bit further up the valley, and I saw there was all this rubbish, all this gunk, that had blocked it off and the stream was just backed up and starting to spread out into other places and I started clearing it out so the stream could flow again and just this little inner voice said to me Graham there's no problem with the supply just let me clean the channel maybe that's what the Lord wants to say to us church tonight maybe saying that to you there's no problem with my supply child just let me clean the channel I want to end, remember I said three New Testament words, we've done that, righteousness, believe, covenant. All we've got now is two hearts. Because there's always a choice of two hearts. And both of these happen when they had to break the rules. Uh, and uh, let me quickly tell you, I'll do this as quick as I can. Hezekiah wants everybody to come to the Passover, but there's a problem. By the time they can all get there, it's the wrong time to have the Passover. And... If they're going to have it when they all arrive, they haven't got time to get ceremonially clean. And the Bible told them when to have the Passover and they had to be ceremonially clean. So he goes to his father and says, Father, and of course God hears and heals the people. And I haven't got time now to, you praise the Lord, I haven't got time, but to go into all the ins and outs of that. But I just want you to hear one phrase from his prayer. Hezekiah goes and he prays and he says, I love this, he says, May the Lord who is good, he knew his dad, May the Lord who is good pardon everyone who sets their hearts on seeking God. Lord, we're at the wrong time of the year. We're not going to get time to do the cleaning thing, but our hearts are to seek you. There's another time when they had to break the rules, much later, Jesus' day, his disciples. They ended up eating when they hadn't ceremonially cleaned their hands. And that upset the religious people, always does. And they came to Jesus and said to him, why don't your disciples live according to the traditions of our elders? We love our traditions, don't we? We sometimes love them way more than Jesus. Why don't you live according to our traditions? And Jesus, gentle Jesus, meek and mild says, well, you've got a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your traditions. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. These people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So two hearts, folks. A heart set on seeking God. Or a heart where we still got the language, might still have the activities, might still do all the things we used to do, but our heart's gone somewhere else. See, I find what happened to Solomon utterly staggering. You think how Solomon's reign started... And at the end, he builds not only a, a high place for his wives, but the worst. He builds a high place to Molech and Chemosh, the child sacrifice idol. You think, how does that? Well, the Bible tells us what happened. Listen to this. Solomon turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his 
How does that happen? Little by little. When I was about 12, a lovely old elder in our church, Dan, gave a message. And I'd always thought of the church in Ephesus where Jesus says, I've got something about first love. And I thought they had lost their first love. And I still remember the impact when he said, actually, they didn't lose it. They left it. They walked away from it. And if you read the translations now, that's exactly what they say. You have walked away. And Solomon did, little by little. And I do. And maybe you are tonight. Like from the outside, it all looks brilliant. And you're not being a hypocrite. But you've just wandered. Just starting to walk away from that first all-engaging love of Jesus. Jerry Bridges talks about the respectable sins. Envy, worry, spiritual pride. Actually, we're doing very well, thank you. Sexual window shopping. A little bit of gossip, strife. Scott Morrison from The Navigators talks about the isms that can be high places. Materialism, impure sexism, me-ism. It's all about me. I need to be comfortable. Moves of God can become idols. Do you know every new move of God cops at worst from the backslidden fruit of the previous move? We deify the form and we lose the substance. See, the serpent was set up. I haven't got time to tell you why. Check it out yourselves. But it was a move of God. It was miraculous. And Jesus said to Nicodemus, I'm going to be lifted up like that serpent was. But by the time Hezekiah comes along, years in a snake-worshipping culture has created an idol. How we do things in church becomes an idol to us sometimes. And the Spirit's wanting to move and we won't let it because it doesn't make us comfortable. Thank you. We, we stand to sing. We raise our hands. Whatever it is. And both those things, are God, I do them both and love it. That's, the point is, what do we do when God comes along and says, I, don't, I want you to move. I want you to follow my spirit, not your tradition. It'll always be biblical, but it'll change culturally. Well, time's way gone, so let me finish with this. Your high places might seem overwhelming. Your high places might say, you might think, oh, Graham, come on, I know what you're saying. Bully for Hezekiah. Me, I'm just here. The water's just under my nose. Well, here's the thing. Don't forget, don't forget, David, Solomon, Hezekiah, Abraham. He told some real porky pies on the journey. They all had imperfect trust, but they had imperfect trust in a perfectly trustworthy God. See that medicine in the picture there? There's an illustration Spurgeon uses that I wanted to give you before you go home. Spurgeon said, you might be very sick. So when you take the medicine, your hand might shake as it comes to your mouth. But the medicine's still going to heal you. The fact that your hand shakes doesn't make the medicine weak. Here's what he said. Your good works don't improve Jesus' righteousness. And your bad works don't sully it. The robe Jesus gives you, your best deeds can't mend and your worst deeds can't tear. You stand in him, not yourself. And that's why I put that that verse up there for you. Clothe yourselves in the Lord Jesus Christ. And just don't make any provision for the flesh. Final thing. 
It's countercultural, but you don't beat sin by wrestling it. You don't beat sin when you fight. That focuses you back on the sin and you end up getting hard and legal. You beat sin when you flee. Flee to God. Cling to God. Hezekiah wasn't focused on which idols he was chucking out of the temple. He wanted to have Passover to establish the covenant with his father. Focus on the father. Let's pray. I'm trusting the Holy Spirit to have spoken about high places, about areas where he's saying, I know you love me, I know you love your Lord, and I know it looks fine on the outside, but you're actually walking away from where we were, and I want you back. I want my children back. Your father longs to have time with you. Longs to have time with me. Staggers me, but he does. As you're in prayer and listening to the Holy Spirit, here's a a question for you to pray. Lord, what am I failing to understand about you that makes this sin so attractive? What am I failing to understand about you, Father? What am I understanding? What am I failing to understand about you, Lord Jesus, that is letting the enemy make this sin seem so attractive to me? Reveal yourself to me in a way that will put that to flight. But I want to look at you, not that. And some words from Isaiah. God will keep in perfect and constant peace the one whose mind is steadfast committed and focused on him because he trusts and takes refuge in his father her father with hope and confident expectation take refuge in your father with hope and confident expectation and clean out and destroy the high places. As, as Jonathan said to us last week, go to God before you go to Google. And the Lord bless you. We hope you enjoyed this message from Mount Pleasant Baptist Church. If you'd like to talk to someone about what you've heard today, then you can contact the team at Mount Pleasant Baptist Church by calling the office during office hours on 9329-1777. Thanks for joining us. We look forward to your company again soon. God bless.